Let's open our Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 9. Matthew, Mark, second gospel, maybe three ways through the Bible. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there should be one in front of you, or you have it on your phone, or your iPad, or your Blackberry, whatever it is. Mark chapter 9, we're going to be reading eight verses from verse number 30 through 37. If you have it, say, I have it. You have it? Okay. If you have it, say, I have it. I have it. Okay. Verse number 30. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee. And he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know about it. For Jesus was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement. And they were afraid to ask him. Verse 33. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, it's probably Peter's house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Father, this morning, we thank you for the precious gift of your word that lights our path that guides us, that speaks to us, that encourages us, that teaches us, that rebukes us, that leads us in the way in which we should go. Father, this morning we come to this Scripture with open hearts. We come to this passage, Lord, with a heart that desires for You to open Your Word to us and explain it to us. I pray, Lord, that You would anoint this time I pray, Father, for everyone here, those who are uh, facing situations and and distractions in their life, things that are preoccupying their minds, Lord, that you would help them this morning, set aside this time and focus in their hearts, that they would see you, Jesus, that they would focus on the cross, and that, Lord, they would be helped and that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know what it is to want to have things your way? It's nice when we have our preferences acknowledged. When we're out in the the world, in our spheres of influence, and we have options. I love options. I don't know about you. It's nice to be able to choose things how we want them when we want them, why they want them. 
There's this new feature on, 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 on the, 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 the cable. It's on demand. You can choose what you want to watch, when you want to watch it. You want to stop it, you want to pause it, you want to rewind it, you want to record it. Anything you want to do, you can do now. All in a, in a, in a sense so that we can have it our way. Is this good? Amen. You're waiting for it, I can tell. There's even companies out there that, that just tell you right away, this is their slogan. I, I think it's Harvey's Restaurant. They say, have it your way. And the other day I was hearing on the radio that they've got some new ingredients, and so now they have 8 million new combinations of how you can have your burger. I, didn't, uh, I just believed them. I didn't go back and do the math on that. Can you believe that? Eight million ways so that you can have your unique personal preference met. This is very characteristic of the culture that we live in. This is characteristic of the spirit of the age. To have it our way. There's that famous song, I did it my way. And others, contemporary artists, all proclaiming the same spirit. All saying the same thing. Doing it my way. As if that somehow is the pinnacle of, of human evolution or achievement or self-actualization. In, in, in getting things in such a way where we become the Lord of our own domain. I want to tell you that as we're looking at our This Is Our Church series, that when we choose to be part of a church, it actually means forfeiting our preferences. Now don't get me wrong, it's, it's nice to be part of a church, part of a family, where we, we like what we have. We, we like the people there, we like that. But if we make preferences the end-all and be-all of our choice, we miss out on the original intention that God has for us. Choosing to be part of a church actually means giving up our preferences. Choosing a church should be based on where the Lord has led you to be. That's what's most important. Of course you should like your church but choosing a church simply because of preferences misses out on the greater blessing that God has. God has ordered the body as He saw fit. God has chosen to put the members of the body together in such a way that we'll all be built up, built up into the fullness, in the stature, and the measure of the fullness of Christ. That we would be built up and encouraged. And sometimes there's going to be things that are outside of what we would naturally choose. In verse 30, I'll read it again. It says, From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and He did not want anyone to know about it, for He was teaching His disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and when He has been killed, He will rise three days later. What's happening here in this passage? Here Jesus is teaching and preaching. He's calling His disciples, but He comes to a point in His ministry where He knows what the road ahead entails. He knows that He's headed towards the cross. And He begins to share this with His disciples. 
Here Jesus is speaking to his disciples about what will soon take place. You see, the cross was heavy. We have to understand that about our Lord Jesus. It wasn't just simple that the Lord gave his life. It wasn't just something easy. It was something of extreme difficulty. We read about his time and trial in the Garden of Gethsemane where the weight of the cross and the mission that the Father had given him, the cup that he was about to drink, was so heavy upon him that he even began to sweat drops of blood. And here, earlier, we find that Jesus, a few times in the Gospel story, begins to tell his disciples about what he's going to face, about the fact that he's going to be captured, about the fact that he's going to be killed, But he encourages them at the end and says that there is hope that he will rise again. Jesus, God of all creation, was to be handed into the hands of that very creation. They would kill him, but his death would not be the end, but his resurrection would follow. Sometimes we go through difficult challenges and things in life. But it's another matter altogether to know ahead of time that we're going to go through something. Sometimes I feel that we're, we're really blessed not knowing the future. Because I think sometimes if we knew what was coming, we wouldn't go through it. But having gone through it, we're thankful because it changed us. It marked us. It built character in us. It built the very life of Christ within us. And if we knew what we were about to face, sometimes even the anticipation of what we go through can be even worse than actually going through it. It's like being on a roller coaster. You're sitting there just waiting for that roller coaster to take off. And that fear is sometimes be actually greater than the ride itself. But here we have Jesus who knew what he was to face. He knew what he was going to go through and he begins to share it with his close friends and his disciples partly because he wanted them to know what was going to happen but also I believe it was also because he wanted them to have empathy with him about what he was about to face. But they missed the point. There's people in our midst that are facing great difficulty. And when we're listening to them, because sometimes we have a focus on ourselves or our our focus on our own prerogatives, things we need to take care of, we miss the point of just taking a moment to stop, to have empathy with our brothers, to have empathy with our sisters. Here Jesus is maybe looking for some solace amongst his close friends, those for the last three years that he's poured his whole life into. And yet they're arguing about something, about rank, about who's going to be great in the kingdom. It says this in verse 32, but they did not understand the statement and they were afraid to ask him. Let me tell you this morning that a wrong focus leads to wrong understanding. A wrong focus leads to wrong understanding. When we get up in the morning... We ask God to bless our day, to help us, to strengthen us, to guide us. It's important that we ask for His mind, for His perspective. He's going to lead us to pray for people. He's going to lead us to share with people. He's going to lead us to reach out and to encourage those because that is His heart and His focus. 
But if we get up and we're busy and we're mindful of what we have to take care of, sometimes we can miss what God is wanting to do in and, of our, in and through our lives because we're focused on just what we have. Are you here this morning? A wrong focus leads to wrong understanding. Let me tell you how dangerous this can be. There was a survey done by Tom Rainer. Uh, he's a head of LifeWay Research. I'm really excited because uh, in, a, in, in uh, less than a couple weeks, I'll be headed to Ottawa to attend the uh, Fellowships National Convention where Tom Rainer is going to be the keynote speaker. And he's just a phenomenal speaker, author, and uh, he's in charge of LifeWay Research, uh, which in the U.S., is uh, probably the biggest research firm for Christian churches. And they, they, they've actually um, done a survey. And, and in the book that we're reading as part of our series, uh, he comes up with uh, some characteristics of a church that has a focus on itself versus a church that is outwardly focused. And I, I want to read them to you. Uh, and, and there's 10 of them. The first one is Worship Wars. A church that has the wrong focus, has an inward focus, tends, as far as the survey says, to war about worship. What songs I like, what songs you like. Oh, we like the new stuff. Oh, we like the hymns. Oh, we, we can have this instrument or we can't have that instrument. Or it has to be, the, the worship service has to be this long and no longer. Or we have to sing more. This becomes the focus of an inward focused church. And because of that, they miss the heart of God. Number two, prolonged minutia meetings. You see, meetings are important. We have a lot of meetings here at the church. Meetings for this ministry, that ministry. We have staff meetings. We have board meetings. We've got team meetings, mission meetings, all kinds of meetings. And it's important to have meetings. But when meetings become about the minutia, about the little things, about the, the, the tedious things that miss the outward focus that God wants to bring, we can say that we've been susceptible to that characteristic. Number three, facility focus. Churches who are inward focused, focused on themselves, missing the heart of God, missing the point, develop their facility in iconic status. Their churches become more like museums with a focus on maintaining it exactly how it's always been. Facility becomes an end in itself rather than a means to an end. Let me tell you, that's not our church. Last night, this whole stage was transformed for the glory of God. Last night, we took everything out so that we could invite new people in and have a show here. And we do that consistently. Number four, program-driven. Again, when programs become an end in themselves instead of a means. You see, we need to have programs as a church. But when programs simply become the point... We miss it. We miss it as a church. We need to have programs. Programs are important. But we need to be understanding that programs are to reach a certain goal, a certain end. And there's always a, a need to have a reflective time where we can refocus to make sure that the ends are being achieved. Number five, inwardly focused budget. Let's talk about money. How much of the budget of a church is for the church in itself? There's a, a, a great pastor and, and author that uh, I really appreciate his ministry quite a bit. His name is Francis Chen. And uh, he was formerly the pastor of Simi Valley in California, Cornerstone Church. And uh, 
he was really convicted about this idea of church budget. They decided after prayerful consideration that they were, they, they were in the middle of a building project and they were about to build this huge type of theater. And rather than, than build it, they decided that they were just going to build kind of a, an open air type of place with no roof. So they would save millions of dollars and they'd be able to give those millions of dollars towards missions instead. Since that time, their church has exploded. Since that time, they have consistently, year over year, marked out 50% of the budget towards missions. That's a great testimony. There's lives being changed and transformed because they decided, in terms of money, that they were going to have an outward focus instead of an inward focus. We come here, and our church has been so faithful in giving. And I want to acknowledge your faithfulness. But I find sometimes it's so hard to give that $100 or $200. But when we talk about a pair of shoes, it's no problem. Number six, inordinate demands for pastoral care. Sometimes there's churches who are inwardly focused and and, uh, they expect that uh, the pastor should be at their house every Sunday simply because that they hold membership at the church. It's just not physically possible. This church currently has 168 members. That means that if every Sunday a pastor or a deacon would visit, it would take over three years to visit everybody just once. Um, That's just an example. These are characteristics of inward-focused churches. Number seven, attitudes of entitlement. Just having the idea that we're entitled to these things. Again, church... The way that the Word of God teaches us this morning is that it's not about us, but it's about Him. It's about God's glory. And I'm thankful to say that I, I saw that ever more clear even as of last night here at Snowden. Number eight, greater concern about change than the gospel. When we're concerned simply about change for change's sake rather than about the mission and the heart of God moving forward. Sometimes inward-focused churches, number nine, have anger and hostility over petty things. And finally, the tenth sign of an inward-focused church is evangelistic apathy. Virtually no one in these churches shares their faith, shares the love of God with their friends, relatives, neighbors. You see, for the inward-focused church, the Holy Trinity is not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but me, myself, and I. Verse 33, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was to be the greatest. You see, they missed the point. Instead of feeling empathy and, and, and being sorrowful for what was about to take place, they fought for precedence. They fought for place. One of the great expositors of the Bible, McLaren, says this, they were ashamed to tell him the cause of their dispute. How chill it must have struck on Christ's heart that those who loved him best cared so much more for their own petty superiority than for his sorrows. Do you see what that's saying? Jesus here is telling him about all that he's going to go through and instead of encouraging him or feeling empathy or sorrow in that time, they argue about who is going to have place in the kingdom. Who's going to be first? Their focus 
led to not understanding correctly. Their focus was on themselves. You see, in and of itself, it might not be wrong to talk about such things. Another biblical scholar says this, a thing which does not appear wrong by itself shows its true character when brought to the judgment of God and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. How many times do we find ourselves arguing about petty things? That if Jesus was standing before us and he asks us the question that he asked the disciples, what were you talking about on the road? What were you so boisterous about? What was the focus of your conversation that we too would keep silent? That all of a sudden our mouths would be stopped up because we would be ashamed. We would be silent. Verse 35, sitting down, he called the twelve to them to him and said, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. McLaren says that Jesus' question here is not a rebuke, but to heal. So his perfect knowledge is blended with perfect love. Even still, see the compassion of our Lord. See that he's facing a weight of the cross. See that he's gone out of his way to explain it and tell them, and they've missed the point completely. They've turned it into a conversation about rank in the kingdom. And even still, our Jesus doesn't rebuke them, but turns to them and says, there's actually a way to get rank in the kingdom. It's to be the servant of all. He reaches to them and tells them that the way up is the way down. That to serve and to become the servant of all is truly what it means to be the greatest of all in his kingdom. How many of us are pursuing the last place? Why should we pursue it? Because we will never find joy through being part of a church or a family of God, when we are constantly seeking things our way. But paradoxically, we find the greatest joy when we choose to be last. Taking a child, verse 36, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me only, but him who sent me. Who do we serve? Jesus is providing us the example of a child. And tonight, our last night, over 500 children were served for the glory of God. But the child is, is, is not just children. It's important to serve children, but what the child represents. And that's the lowly, that's the humble, that's the marginalized. That's those who are not fighting for their way. They are the least of all. They are the ones who we are called to serve. Why do we serve? For His glory. He said, if you receive the child in what? In my name. What does it mean to be receiving a child in His name? It means it's for His glory. It means that it's through His character. It means that it's with His principles and that it's by His love that we reach those God has called us, called us to reach. We are revealing His love to them. And in, in that way, we give Him all the glory. It's in His name. And what is the result? We find out that the whole time we weren't serving them, but we were actually serving the Lord Himself. That is the result, that we find out we weren't actually serving them, 
Because what Jesus said, when you receive them, you receive me, but not only me, the one who sent me. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11, through 11, it says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, in verse 6 here, we can remark that if Jesus was truly divine, then to humble Himself, to become a man, was actually the supreme act of humility. It was the greatest act of condescension possible. The Creator Himself to become part of His creation. In this way, Jesus models humility. And the Apostle Paul here in Philippians encourages us, have the same attitude, have the same mind as Christ, who though He was God, He humbled Himself and became a servant, but not just any servant, a servant even to the point of the cross, even to the point of death. It is the supreme act of humility. In verse 7 it says, He emptied Himself. Now there's a lot of debate on what that means. But essentially, he laid aside his prerogatives of what it meant to be God so that he could come down to our level that we might be saved. It was the great exchange that took place when our Lord took upon flesh. In verse 8, it says he, humbled to the, he was humbled to the lowest state of man. The crowning instance of his humility is when He endured the cross for us. As I invite the men to come forward, we're going to prepare this time of communion. And I'd also invite Jonathan to the piano so that he can play while the elements are being distributed. I want that to be our focus this morning. I want to encourage you, because I know many of you here work very hard to serve. I've seen that firsthand last night. And I know there's a lot of things that we don't even see. A lot of things that you're doing that no one sees. But I want to tell you that the Lord sees. The Lord knows all that you're doing to serve. And let me encourage you by saying this. When we have come to the end of our ability to serve others, remember the cross. When we have come to the end of our own strength, our own rope, our own capacity. Maybe you're at that place today where you feel like you're at the end of your ability. Remember the cross. Remember that we're not just serving each other, but we're serving Him. He humbled Himself, and that's the attitude that we need to model.